think about crises and what they mean and what they might teach us. Hi, I'm Vicki Robin with a big question and a guest who might give us some inspiring and provocative answers. In partnership with the Post Carbon Institute, we're asking cultural scouts, authors and activists, academics and creatives, who can see further and report back to us on this question about this moment in time. What could possibly go right? It's June 2020. We are talking against the backdrop of a week of protests sparked by police murder of George Floyd. And then against a deeper background of climate disruptions. And of course, the recent background of four months as this COVID-19 pandemic has abandoned our lives, our jobs, our routines, and our plans. <clears throat> Who knows where the pieces will land? And that's both energizing and frightening. We don't need dark projections now, nor do we need reassurance that all will be well. To respond, we need a flashlight, a sharp focus, and some reliable guides. My cultural scout today is Bill McKibben. Uh, Bill, in addition to being an old, old friend, is an author and environmentalist who in 2014 was awarded the Right Livelihood Prize, sometimes called the Alternative Nobel. His 1989 book, The End of Nature, is regarded as the first book for a general audience on climate change. He's the founder of 350.org, the first planet-wide grassroots climate change movement, and spearheaded the resistance to the Keystone Pipeline, and launched the fast-growing fossil fuel divestment movement. So uh, welcome, Bill. Let's just start with a little check-in. Where are you and how are you and how have the last four months been? Well, they've been okay for me, Vicki. I'm, um, I'm at home in Vermont, and it's been uh, quite easy to ride out the pandemic here because I can walk out the back door and be in the woods. And, and so, and I have good work to do, you know, that's connected with, I've been writing this climate newsletter for the New Yorker, and really it's turned into an awful lot about the coronavirus pandemic over these months as well. I've had 30 years since I wrote The End of Nature to think about crises and what they mean and what they might teach us. And, and I think that this thing we're going through now is the beginning of what's likely to be a series of crises this century because we've fundamentally destabilized the planet on which we live. There are no silver linings to something like a pandemic, but if we're gonna go through this kind of pain and trauma, it seems worthwhile to try and learn something along the way. So I'm very glad you're doing this series and very eager to see what people come up with. You want me to give you my sense of two or three lessons we might Absolutely. Yeah, precisely. That's why we're here. Some of them look forward and some of them look back. I mean, first thing it seems to me is it's highly useful to have a reminder that reality is real. Um, we live in a world because we exist behind screens all the time where everything seems editable, you know. Uh, you can drag things around on your screen and change reality and make it different. And that's all great. But there's an underlying reality that doesn't work like that. I've spent 
30 years trying to convince people that physics and chemistry don't compromise or negotiate. Uh, the, the COVID microbe is doing the same task for biology and it's doing it in short order. Doesn't make any difference if the president stands up and calls it a hoax or says it's going to go away by Easter or the cases are going to drop to zero or if you drink this bottle of something, it'll, you know, whatever. Uh, that's not how it works. Um, if the microbe says wear a mask, then wear a mask because you're not in control, biology's in control. That's simply how the world works. And so, and, and, and it really is useful for us to know that because reality is what we're going to have to deal with in a way we haven't in quite a while if we're going to get a, a handle on the climate crisis. It's the ultimate assertion of physical reality in our postmodern, uh, highly mediated and abstracted world. The second thing I'd say is a corollary really to that first lesson is that speed really matters sometimes when you're dealing with reality. Um, we live in a world where our political leaders are used to thinking that you can sort of placate and temporize and do half a job and it'll sort of get whatever the issue is off your back for a while and you'll go on to something else. And actually, that's kind of how it needs to work with most things, you know? Um, I mean, when they're when we're talking about you know I mean there's lots of things where you have to make incremental progress and come back and do some more and so on but in this case that's not what we're dealing with look the the US and South Korea both had their first fatality from coronavirus on the same day in January so the South Koreans who had had a brush with all of this when the SARS epidemic not that long ago they went straight to work. They stopped big gatherings and they tested the hell out of everyone all the time so they could keep track of what was going on. We obviously did not go to work. We wasted all of February dithering around and delaying and worrying that the stock market might go down or some such. And instead, um, we now, as a result, and this is what happens when you delay, a, you have to disrupt things way more than you otherwise would have. We had to shut down the whole country. And B, even when you do that, you still end up with a huge amount of trauma. Because you delayed, we've got a big pile of dead bodies. In fact, the Times ran an investigative piece last week indicating that even if we'd gotten to this one week earlier, there'd be 35,000 more Americans alive today than there are. So that should teach us something about speed. The corollary, the, I mean, the, the analog with climate change couldn't be clearer. In this case, February is the last 30 years, you know. That's when we had the profound warning from science about what to do, and that's when we did nothing, largely thanks to the power of the fossil fuel industry. And I'll say in passing that the one blessing of the coronavirus thing is that there was no trillion-dollar industry whose business model depended on us all dying of coronavirus. Because if there was, we'd probably be in even worse shape than we are now, you know. But there was a trillion dollar industry that demanded we not take action on climate change. And they succeeded. 
And so now we're in a place where we still have to move very, very fast. I mean, the IPP, IPCC says by the end of, by 2030, we have to have cut emissions in half to have any hope of reaching those Paris targets. But now, even if we move fast, it's going to be very disruptive by necessity. And there's going to be a lot of trauma. It's too late to stop much of what's coming down the road. So reality is real. Speed matters. And third, and this really takes us to where we are right now with these questions, you know, these uprisings around uh, the death of George Floyd and so much else. Um, um, social solidarity really matters. You know, Vicki, you and I grew up politically came of age kind of in the shadow of Ronald Reagan. He was the dominant political figure of our lifetimes in a lot of ways, the person who kind of changed the zeitgeist and in a very bad way. I mean, his argument was that markets solved all problems, more or less, that people should just pursue their individual self-interest and everything would flow from that. You'll remember that his most famous laugh line in his speeches was the nine scariest words in the English language are I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Uh, you know, ha ha. It turns out the scariest words in the English language are we've run out of ventilators or the hillside behind your house is now on fire or things like that. And those you can't solve one person at a time. Doesn't matter how rich you are, you know? Uh, I mean, uh, 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 you have to solve those by working together. By coming together, I mean, what's, what's government? It's just another name for working together, coming together as a society to do the things we need to do. And so now we have to rebuild that and we have to rebuild it this time with everyone. Uh, the uprisings around police brutality and George Floyd's murder are also at some level uprisings around the insane levels of inequality that we've managed to allow in our society, inequality by race, by wealth, by gender, by all the other things that divide us. And we can't let those divisions go on any longer. We need a unified and fair society because we now face a task, climate change, so large that it's going to take a united society to have any hope of dealing with it. You know, there are other lessons that come out of this moment too. Um, clearly, it's been interesting to watch. We shut down the world's economy in a way that would have been impossible. Nothing compares to in our lifetimes to what's happened. And yet, interestingly, emissions only fell maybe 15% or so at most. I mean, I don't know anyone's been on an airplane in months, uh, you know. Um, so what it indicates is that while our individual habits and choices are important, they're probably not all important. And an awful lot of the destruction we're doing is hardwired into our system. And so we're going to have to pull the guts of that system out and rewire it. The good news is that that's more possible than it used to be. The engineers have done their job. 
in the last decade, the price of a solar panel or something has plummeted 90%. So we no longer face the technological or economic obstacles to doing this, but we still face those enormous political obstacles that come with vested interest. However, since one of the features of the pandemic is going to be that we emerge with at least 40 million Americans out of work, uh, when we look around our society and catalog the series of tasks we have that might sop up that kind of labor, it's pretty hard to find anything other than transforming our energy system, retrofitting our buildings to make them efficient, you know, changing our agriculture to make it more local, building out those solar panels and wind turbines. Those are the tasks that can sop up that kind of labor and do it in a way that's filled with dignity and usefulness. So maybe we will seize this opportunity. Not obviously, as long as Donald Trump's in power. Uh, that's, <laughs> I've been talking about seizing anything with dignity and you know, decency and foresight and whatever is clearly a pointless exercise in Washington right at the moment. On the other hand, we have elections in November. So the timing is propitious there too. Um, um, we don't solve all of our problems with elections. We solve our problems by building movements that shift the zeitgeist, that allow us to go new places in our politics. And it's exciting to watch that movement building going on even as we speak. Wow. Thank you for, um, what, a, what a clear picture of where we are. Um, if you would take a stab at a few sentences, um, that describe the zeitgeist we need. I mean, you've almost done it in what you're saying, but um, yeah, just a few sentences. You're a writer, you could do this. Yeah. What is the story? What is the story that you see emerging that's so possible that, that we could, we could um, amplify with our words and our memes and our relationships? Uh, to me, the story is very, stark. The world faces unprecedented peril, a uh, peril of a size that we've not faced before. Climate change is the biggest thing that human beings have ever done by a large margin, and if we get it wrong, our civilizations will go down. Getting it right requires that we work together, that we build societies that allow us to work together to let everyone have a role in this fight and that protect everyone in a time of real danger. We need that kind of, of solidarity, of brotherhood or whatever we, whatever the right term would be now, brotherhood and sisterhood and personhood uh, uh, that, uh, and creaturehood <laughs> maybe, that allow us to really dig in and do work in a way we've never done it before. Wow. Well, that <laughs> says it. <laughs> of course, I totally agree with you on that project. And of course, you and I as writers wake up, oh, I'm going to cry. We wake up every morning trying to tell that story. Not tell the story of fear and helplessness, but tell the story 
I'm not like the La La story about how it's all going to be like, you know, <laughs> rainbows and unicorns, but the story of how people can, can face into the storm and together get through it. You know, we're not going to get through it in little single rowboats. We're going to get through it together and how we build it together. That's, you know, it's up to us and it's up to today and tomorrow and the next day. So. Amen. And what makes it an interesting story is we don't know the outcome. We actually don't know who can do this or not. Um, and that requires us to be brave. Uh, we have a time. Mm. If we don't meet the time limit, then we lose. And so we have to work fast and we have to work together and we have to work with courage. So unity is a big part of all of this. And Vicki, let me just say thank you for this series, but also just thank you for your lifetime of work as a convener and a thinker and, uh, and uh, 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 just as a good soul of demonstrating to others how to be a good soul. God bless you, friend. God bless you too, Bill. I love you. And thank you so much. Um, we all thank you. Thank you.